We're going to be in Galatians chapter 1 today, uh, verses 6 through 10. If you want to go ahead and begin to turn there, <clears throat> many of you are parents, and uh, maybe you're old enough you can't remember your kids doing this, but you've seen it in your grandkids. I know there's some of you that are old enough you've probably seen this in your great-grandkids too, but we're not going to call out names. But have you ever laid out some boundaries for your kids? And, and, you know, they might be metaphorical boundaries or they might be real physical boundaries. Maybe you're sitting in the front yard and you tell your kids, you can go out to the sidewalk, but don't, don't go past it, right? And what's the first thing your kids are going to do? They're at least going to go right up to the edge of the sidewalk. And what mine would have done, especially when they were younger at that point, they'd take their foot and they'd start putting it over and they'd look back. (laughs) Have you ever had them do that? Or were your kids the ones that would just go right on past and not even look back? Some of you had those kind of kids as well. You lay out the boundaries and you 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 give something clear and yet they immediately go rushing right past it. The Apostle Paul, when he launched the church, the churches of Galatia. Now, this is not one church. There were several churches that he planted in multiple towns and communities. When he planted those churches, he made clear what the gospel was. And you find in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul make this statement. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. That word amazed can be translated as shocked. Uh, It can also be translated as uh, irritated. I am irritated that you so quickly, I just left. We looked at the timeline last week. Paul was probably finished up that first missionary journey maybe as late as early 48 AD. And by late 48 AD, he's writing this letter back to them because they have already begun to turn to a false gospel. They begin to accept a perverted gospel. And we're going to learn a whole lot more about what the perversion of that gospel was as we go forward into uh, uh, Galatians chapter 2 and Galatians chapter 3 in particular. What you had were guys that were coming in and were teaching that, you know, it's okay. Yeah, certainly you have to, by faith, receive Christ. But before you do that, there's some physical things you have to do. In particular, uh, the Galatians were apparently uh, facing what were called Judaizers or the circumcision party. They were telling them that first you have to become a Jew or first you have to take some actions to show that that you believe in Judaism before you can become a a believer in Christ or you can follow Christ. And and that's just one of the perversions of the gospel probably that the Galatians faced. There, There were some others. But ultimately, Paul's amazement, what triggers him is he hadn't even been gone very long. It's like he, you just told your kids, don't do that, and you turn your back, and they've already done it. And Paul is frustrated and irritated, and, and as it's translated here, amazed uh, that they had so quickly turned away. How long does it take for someone to receive a teaching And immediately, or how long does it take for them to turn from it and go somewhere else? Apparently, the churches in Galatia, it did not take long for them to begin to adopt this false teaching. Read with me uh, verses 6 through 10. It's going to be our focus today. Paul writes, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you. And want to distort 
the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For I am now trying to persuade people, or for am I now trying to persuade people or God? Am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. That last verse is going to be key for us as we work through this text. But I'm going to, I'm going to pause for just a moment before I, I dig in too far to the outline of this particular text to just say, what is the gospel? And this is going to be key, and it's going to be important every week to keep in mind exactly what the gospel is. The gospel is the story of good news. That word that's translated gospel, is, is, it comes, we talked about this last week, it comes from a Greek word, message, so uh, angelo or angelos, ha angelos, which is also translated angels who are messengers from God. So it's the Greek word message with a prefix epsilon, upsilon on it. So that prefix is translated good. So it's the good message. It's the good news. The content of the gospel is outlined various ways throughout scripture, but one of the best ways is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says this is what the gospel, this contains the gospel. Jesus died, as it is written, Jesus died according to scripture for your sins. Jesus rose again according to scripture, and Jesus is going to return according to scripture. Okay? That's the content of the gospel. We sin, Jesus came and he died for our sins, that when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we can have everlasting life based on his death, burial, and resurrection. That's, that's the good news. I don't have to do anything. Jesus did it all. And yet what, the, what, what was happening in Galatia, there were people coming behind Paul's teaching and were adding to the gospel. They're saying, okay, well, yeah, it's good that you have faith, but you also must. Now, I want to be honest here because in some very real ways, that has happened to many of you just like it happened to me. When I was a 12-year-old boy, I was convicted of my sin. In a, in a Sunday through Wednesday night, it was probably Sunday through Friday night, revival meeting. I don't remember how long the meeting went, but I remember one night just being overwhelmed with the, the truth that I was a sinner and that there's nothing I could do about it. That, that, that because of my sin, I was deserving of death. I was going to go to hell. That's what scared me. I was a sinner, and I needed help. Now, up until then, I had a misconception that I could do something about it. I, I had this idea that if I'll go to church more Sundays than I miss, God will weigh that out on his scales of, of judgment. And, and in the end, uh, as long as I went more Sundays than I missed, then he would have to let me into heaven. Now, I had a lot of days to make up because a lot of the time between the, the time I was about five or six years old and 11 or 12 years old, we spent every weekend fishing or hunting. And so when we weren't fishing, we were hunting or dad had us working on something. So I had a lot of Sundays I had to make up over the next 10 or 12 years, but I thought there was going to come a tipping point where I'd do enough good, I'd go enough Sundays, God would have to let me into heaven. As a 12-year-old boy, hearing the gospel proclaim that we're all sinners... And because of our sin, we're separated from God. I was, 
I was convicted. I knew I was in trouble. So I asked mom, what do I need to do? Well, my mom, being the great theologian that she was, said, go forward and ask the pastor tomorrow night. Now, I imagine some of y'all had that same experience. I go forward, ask the pastor. The pastor sits down with me, walks me through the Roman road, helps me understand that if I will confess my sin and, and confess my need for Christ, confess him as Lord and Savior, that he will save me and I'll be cleansed from my sins. Praise God! I trusted Christ as Savior. I'm, 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 I'm good now. And I was. I believe at that moment the Spirit of the living God put a new heart inside of me. But it didn't take long in fact, that next day, I went to school and I started telling my friends, I got saved. I accepted Jesus uh, last night. I'm going to be baptized. Immediately, I began to hear this stuff. Well, you, you, can't, you can't go to the school dance now. If you're a Christian, you can't go dance. And, and you can't play cards anymore. And, 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 and all of a sudden, there's this entire list of rules and regulations that somehow was connected to my salvation. Now, I firmly believe that when God gives you a new heart, when he saves you, he gives you a new heart, and you begin to live a different kind of life. But what I was hearing was a list of rules and regulations that somehow were so intimately connected to my salvation that, that I was worried about my salvation if I played cards or I went dancing. That's what the Galatians are being told here. Paul comes and he preaches a pure gospel of faith in Christ. And the next thing they have is they have some Judaizers coming behind Paul saying, well, it's, it's all well and good that you put faith in Jesus, but you also must. Dr. McGorman, who recently passed away, he was one of my professors at Southwestern, he put it this way. If you add anything to the pure gospel as a qualification or make it necessary for salvation. It's like looking at Jesus on the cross and saying, Jesus, your death was necessary, but it's not enough. Anything that you add is like telling Jesus that his sacrifice on the cross was necessary, but it's just not enough. And so throughout church history, some have said, well, okay, you have to believe, but you have to be baptized to be saved. That poor thief on the cross is eternally damned, I guess, right? The gospel has to remain pure because anything that you use, anything that distorts the gospel is no longer the gospel. Let's walk through this because this is the argument Paul's going to make. First of all, is that I'm, a, I'm amazed that you so quickly turn away. Another word that's used to translate that Greek word there is abandon the one from whom you were called. Who was it that called them? When you first read this text, it can get a little bit confusing. Is Paul talking about himself? Is Paul talking about the missionary team that presented the gospel to them? When you look at Paul's use of, when he refers to talking to Christians who called you, he consistently throughout all of his letters is referring to God, God the Father. So here, Keep that in context, though it's not as clear in verse 6 as it is other places in Paul's writing. When Paul writes these words, I'm amazed that you so quickly turn away from him who called you, that you turned away from God. And in fact, it's similar language to what Moses used when Moses came down off of the mountain and he found that the Israelites in, in his time gone had, had made the golden calf. He comes down and he says, I'm so amazed that so, so quickly you can turn away from the one who rescued you who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you through uh, the, the Red Sea, who parted the sea. How could you so quickly forget 
and abandon the one who's rescued you. That's Paul's words here. How can you so quickly abandon the truth from the one who has rescued you by his grace? God is the one who called them, but God called them through the gospel of grace. It is the heavenly father who has been at work in your life. It was the heavenly father who was at work in my life to draw me to him. I don't believe salvation, your salvation experience ever begins with the person, the human being. God is at work calling you and drawing you to himself. God is the originator of that call. And if he has called you, he's calling you through his gospel of grace. He's not calling you through the rules. He's not calling you through the law. The law was given so that we could see our sin. Religion was given so we could see our failure, but the gospel of grace was given so that we could see God's love and respond to the cross. And so Paul writes here, I'm amazed that you so quickly abandoned God who called you by his gospel of grace because that gospel of grace came in Christ. He called you by the grace of of Christ. So the Father is calling through the good news of the gospel of grace that's found in Christ. That's important because the gospel of God's grace is not found anywhere else. The gospel of God's grace is not found in a preacher. It's not found in a denomination. The gospel of God's grace is not found in some type of theology some systematic theology. The gospel of God's grace is not found in any other person. It's not found in Muhammad. It's not found, gospel of God's grace is not found in Gandhi. The gospel of God's grace is not found in a medicine man. The gospel of God's grace is found in Jesus Christ. It is he and he alone whom God sent to be born of a virgin to walk among us to die on a cross, and to be resurrected. Jesus is unique and different as he is the one and only Son of God through whom God has drawn us to himself. The gospel of God's grace is a pure gospel that comes only through Christ. That's why Jesus could say the night before he died, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Nobody. There's no other way. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the only hope that we have through our faith and trust in Christ. He's our only hope. The gospel of God's grace comes through Christ. It doesn't come through religion. It doesn't come through Judaism. It doesn't come from memorizing the Baptist faith and message. The gospel of God's grace comes through faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. That is so crucial to get in this first verse because what happens is anything other than that pure gospel through Christ is a distortion of the gospel and ultimately is not good news at all. So there's only the next major point here. You see in verse 7, 8, is there is only one gospel. 
He, he, he ends verse 6 by saying, and they turn to a different gospel. It kind of leaves the door open. Okay, what's the different gospel? Oh, they're trying to, they're, they're telling you something else that's good news. It's a different gospel. But then Paul clarifies himself, but there's not another gospel. They have distorted it. They've made it up and they've told you, oh, well, that's good news. But let me give you some more good news that goes along with it. I've got further revelation that the Judaizers might have been saying. Yes, yes, you, you, you need Jesus, but you also need this and you also need this. And if you don't get that, then, then it's not enough. And so Paul says, look, they're trying to tell you there's a different gospel, but there is no other gospel. There's only one gospel. There's only one set of good news. There's only one hope for eternal life, and that comes through Christ. A distorted gospel, Paul says, is a different gospel. Okay? If it's distorted, it's different than what you have in Christ. And if it's a different gospel, it's no gospel at all. If you're trying to win someone over by some other gospel than the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, you're you're presenting no gospel at all because there is no hope and there is no good news, good news outside of the cross of Christ. Anything else, anything else added to the gospel, anything taken away from, from what Scripture tells us of the gospel, anything else is no gospel at all. It is not good news. We live in a world that continually adds to and subtracts from the gospel. We, we, we live in a world that's filled with churches that, that, that want to take the easy way out and say, well, Jesus is one way, but there are other paths to eternal life. There's other paths to heaven. No, there's not. That, that may, that's presented in a way to try to make people feel good. Well, you don't really have to believe in Jesus. You don't really have to believe that he died and rose again because a loving God certainly is not going to condemn anyone to, to an eternity separated from him. He wants you to be with him. And so any path that you take that is uh, just sincere, that's enough. I may sincerely believe at some point, I, I may become convinced that if I, if I just stomp hard enough when I'm going down 35, if I stomp hard enough on that right pedal in my truck that I'll come to a stop, I can believe that however sincerely I want, I want to. But that's not how the truck's made, right? I have to stomp on that next pedal if I want to stop. I stomp on the right pedal if I want to go. Because that's the nature, that's the truth of it. You can have a sincere belief about anything that is untrue, and it leaves you without hope. It's, it's not good news. It's not even news if it's not the truth. And so you can sincerely believe that there are other paths, but the truth contained in the gospel is without question. Peter, when he was preaching the sermon at Pentecost right after it, he was asked that question, what must we do to be saved? And he tells them, he said, you have to believe in the name of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. None. There's no other way. So the only way that you can come to some type of conclusion that there's another pathway is you disregard the clear teaching of Scripture. And I'm afraid that that's what's happened in some of our churches. 
So we've just disregarded the clear teaching of Scripture. There is no other pathway to, to heaven. There's no other way to eternal life outside of Christ. There is no other gospel. And any time that you add something as a qualifier to the gospel, it is no longer the gospel at all. It becomes, if you say, well, okay, you have to be, put your faith in Christ and, and trust the, the, the good news and be baptized. Now you've added something that man has to do to qualify for salvation. If you add circumcision or you add any other of the list of rules that we might add, at that point you've added, you're saying that, okay, what Christ did was necessary, but now I have to do this. And you add to that, you are no longer teaching the true gospel. And so then Paul gives some very direct uh, thoughts on what people who preach the distorted gospel, what, what should happen to them. He says twice here, they should be cursed. Even if we, if I come to you and I preach something else, I should be cursed. If an angel descends out of heaven and he tells you there's another way other than Christ, he should be cursed. Any man, anybody, anyone who would come and preach another gospel to you, a distorted gospel to you other than what you've heard, should be cursed. And if it wasn't enough for him to say it once, he comes back to it and he says, and now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. Now, it's intriguing here because Paul harshly calls out those who preach a false gospel. And in fact, we're going to see in Galatians chapter 2, Paul deals with Peter face to face when he thought Peter was distorting the gospel by hanging out with the Judaizers and not hanging out with those believers from, from Antioch. He, he actually calls out uh, Barnabas in his letter to the Galatians, we'll see in chapter 2. But then you come to chapter 4 and Paul talks about how we as believers need to not rip each other apart and, and, and backbite and, and talk about each other because we'll, we'll tear each other up, we'll consume each other. And so you have to ask the question, Paul, where is it? Where's, where's the difference? Where is it that you can come so hard on people and, and attack them so viciously and, and curse them? In fact, he even says about the circumcision party later on that he wished that they would just mutilate themselves when they were forcing circumcision on people. Go far beyond the circumcision to mutilation. He's harsh when it comes to this issue, but... Where's the line? Because it seems like he's telling us later on, look, you need to learn to get along in the church and you're going to have some disagreements. Well, there's one thing that Paul would not relent on, and that's the nature of the gospel itself. Essentially what Paul's saying is you might have some disagreements on other issues, but you cannot have a disagreement on this and have fellowship together. You must have this settled. Jesus is the one and only hope of eternal life. And we only, the only hope of eternal life is by, by his grace, through faith, trusting in the one who died, rose, and is coming again. If we can't have agreement on that issue, then we can't have fellowship within the church. That is necessary to be a part of the body of Christ. You can disagree about some other theological issues, but you cannot miss that. And if you add anything to it, you're distorting the gospel and it's no longer 
the gospel at all. Third, and this really just deals with verse 10, a gospel that is proclaimed or preached to please men will always be a distorted gospel. If the purpose, the reasoning behind, or the approach of the proclamation of the gospel is to please men, it will, of necessity, always get distorted. For the circumcision party, their desire was to please the religious leaders or to, 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 of, of their heritage. For the circumcision party that Paul was dealing with here, uh, they wanted to you know, I want you to remember, if, if, and you'll get there in your growth groups, in that first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas got stoned, they got cursed at, they got run out of town. And so you have believers that come behind them that want to make nice, so to speak, and, and not have to be stoned. <laughs> they don't want to have rocks thrown at them and be drug out of town, so they soften down. They water down the gospel so it's more palatable to the Jews in these towns. So that... Uh, they, they come and they say, okay, well, let's say, let's do it this way. Let's say that, yes, you have to get circumcised and, and, and believe, in, Jesus, believe uh, in Judaism and accept the, 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 sacri- or the sacrifices and, and, and the celebrations of Judaism, but then you can become a Christian. So they, they water down the gospel to make it more palatable to those who had these, these beliefs. That temptation that the Judaizers had and that some of these preachers had, I mean, this is 48 AD, so at the launch of the church. That is the same temptation that we see throughout church history and that we see repeated again and again today in our world. So you have people that preach a watered-down gospel that, that says, well... There's, there's other ways. Or actually there was a pastor on 60 Minutes a few years ago and, and I'll never, this interview will never leave my head. The interviewer on 60 Minutes asked this popular pastor uh, who has a, a huge following and, and just simply asked him, you know, you don't, you've been accused or, or it's been said that you don't preach a lot about the blood of Christ and you don't, you don't preach on the cross and you don't, you don't preach on sin a lot. And, uh, you know, some other evangelical leaders are, are saying that you're not preaching the whole gospel. And his reply was, well, those kind of things make people feel bad. And I don't want to, I don't want to, I want our focus to be on what makes people feel good. And so I don't want to, I want to preach on anything. I want to preach a message or I don't want to mention a topic that, that, that gives people a negative feeling about Christianity. And so I'm only going to preach on the positive things. I'm only going to preach on the, the good things, the good side of the gospel. That, my friends, is really a perfect picture of a modern-day, distorted, false gospel. You cannot proclaim the gospel without preaching the cross. You can't understand the sacrifice without understanding the blood that was shed and the body of Christ that was broken. Yes, sometimes we preach tough messages. 
I, I don't believe that you can understand, fully understand the beauty of eternal life that's been offered to you until you understand that separation from God for all of eternity is hell. Anything that waters down the gospel for the approval of man is a false gospel. Now, let me walk very carefully here, and it's not that I'm walking on eggshells, but I, I do want to be careful with this, because there was a, a, a movement that really began in the late 70s, early 80s, and it's, it's begun to kind of come to the end, uh, like a lot of movements do, a lot of cycles do, a church growth movement that was based on the idea of seeker-sensitive worship. Now, the idea behind seeker-sensitive worship was that the, the, the number one place that a lot of people actually come to faith in Christ is during a worship service. And so, uh, Willow Creek Bible Church up in Chicago was one of the early proponents of, of the seeker-sensitive movement. The idea was that we want to have a, a, basically a, a concert, we want to include drama, we want to do all kinds of things in our morning worship service that is tuned to drawing in lost people so that those who are seeking questions or asking questions, so there's, there, there may be seekers at heart that, that we can make them feel good and bring them in. A lot of, a lot of people came to faith in Christ through the seeker-sensitive movement, and it was very successful as an evangelism tool. But here's the struggle. Worship is the exaltation of a holy God. A holy God who is both intimate and loving and who also is powerful and omnipotent and just. Who, who describes his wrath against sin throughout scripture as well as he describes his love for men. And, and if, you're, if you're so sensitive to what seekers are thinking instead of being sensitive to what God desires in worship, you're missing the point of worship. Worship is about God. Worship is about praising his name. Now, the, I love, I love when I've come into an incredible experience of worship before a holy God and I've been changed and I've been, I've been encouraged and I've been lifted up. Those, those emotions and those feelings that come out of, of, of coming into the presence of God through, through great music or, or even drama or great preaching, whatever it happens to be, when my heart is connected to holy God and I surrender before him, that's a beautiful experience, but it ought not be about me. It ought to be about God because sometimes the most productive things that happen when I come before a holy God is not to make me feel good. It's like what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah comes before the Lord's throne and he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne. And he describes the glory of the throne room. And then Isaiah says, I looked at his holiness and I said, oh my gosh, I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm surrounded by a people of unclean lips. What am I going to do? And in his vision, one of the angels went and he took a hot coal from the altar and he brought that hot burning coal, think about that for a moment, and applied it to Isaiah's lips as a symbol of purification that comes from coming into the presence of a holy God. 
I don't know if you've ever grabbed a hold of a hot coal or not, but it hurts. It burns. But in the image that God gave Isaiah, it purifies. There are times when I walk out of a worship service and I don't feel good about it because God has applied that hot burning coal of his purifying holiness to my heart and my lips. And I needed that that day. There are times when, when we're singing a song that, that the Spirit of God has, has laid on Matthew's heart that he has brought to us, and I'm convicted of my sin when I've come into the presence of God, and that doesn't necessarily feel good. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not to make you feel good or to make me feel good. That's not the purpose of the gospel. And I'll say it again. Anytime that you make it the purpose of the gospel or of the proclamation of God's word, if your purpose is to please men, you're not preaching the full gospel. Because it's not about pleasing men. Paul asked that question, and in fact, uh, there's some, in our translation, the CSB says, for am I now trying to persuade people? You'll see an alternate translation to that. Am I trying to win the approval of people? Am I trying to please men, I believe, is the translation from the New American Standard? And then he goes on to say in the second question of that same verse, am I, am I striving to please people? Those are rhetorical questions coming from Paul. Paul is not seeking to please men. He's seeking to please God. He doesn't care if he takes the beating. He doesn't care if he's drug out of town and stoned. His desire, his purpose is to serve as a faithful servant, a faithful apostle for Jesus Christ. And he comes down to say there at the end of verse 10, if I am still trying to please people, I am not a servant of Christ. The gospel is not there to make us feel good. The gospel is there that we might respond in repentance unto salvation and be saved for eternal life. I don't want a doctor to look at my x-ray. If he, if he does a full body scan of me and he sees three or four cancers in there, I don't want the doctor coming back to me saying, oh, it all looks good. It, it's all good. You're going to be great. I want the doctor to come and look and say, wait a minute, there's three or four spots we're concerned about. We need to do a biopsy. And I'm going, wait a minute, a biopsy, that's going to hurt. Yes, it is. And then the doctor comes back and he finds out that I've got a cancerous tumor. I don't want him to say, oh, well, you know, we're just going to hope it goes away. I want him to give me the, the hard news that, yes, you've got a cancerous tumor, but if we'll do surgery, we can take that thing out. Well, wait, doc, that's going to hurt. But if we never face the truth, we never receive the treatment, we'll never be healed. The gospel, where it intersects with men, it is not for your approval, it's not for your comfort. The gospel where it intersects with your life is for your salvation through repentance 
to the glory of God for his purpose and for his kingdom. If you're preaching a watered-down gospel and your desire is the approval of men, you're not preaching the gospel at all. I don't want the doctor seeking my approval. I want him seeking what's best for my health. The gospel of Jesus Christ will give you eternal life. There's no other gospel. There's no distortion of it that's going to help you out. The pure, unadulterated gospel is your hope of eternal life. I'm a sinner. Because of my sin, Scripture says that I'm eternally separated from God and the wages of sin is death. But Romans 6, 23 goes on to say, but there's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you'll believe, if you'll trust, if you'll surrender your heart over to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will save your soul. But there is no other way. There's no other way. He's your hope. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.